I'd like to uh, turn and uh, introduce our speaker for this morning. Um, Hannah Nielsen is our Associate Director of Youth Ministries, and um, uh, she's brought her uh, fan club with her. So that's why, you know, that's why. I don't know. Uh, let me say a brief word about Hannah. You know, by analogy, in the world of Major League Baseball, people talk about prospects, you know, players that are coming up in the system, and they'll talk about like a five-tool prospect. You know, five tools. That's like they can throw, and they can hit, and they can run, and, you know, two other tools along with that. <laughs> they are five-tools prospects, and sometimes they just refer to them uh, as toolsy prospects, you know, people that have a lot of talent to offer. So I do want to say that Hannah in our midst is a toolsy minister. She's got a lot going for her. She is the answer to many of our prayers for young leaders of the next generation that will lead the church into its future. Uh, so I appreciate so many things that she does well, but at the center of all of that is a heart of love, a heart of love for God a heart of love for God's word, and a heart of love for the young people of our church. And for all of these reasons, I hope you give me, uh, join me in giving a warm round of applause to our sister. Wow. <laughs> Whoa, this has a lot more energy than the first service, let me tell you. <laughs> Wild. Well, good morning. As Brad said, my name is Hannah Nielsen. I am the Associate Youth Director here, soon to be Associate Youth Pastor, once I get licensed. Um, and it is a joy, an honor, a privilege to be talking to you and with you this morning. Um, to start out, I know a lot of you. I also don't know a lot of you. So uh, to get going this morning, I like to start out my sermons with some fun facts, just to get to know each other. Granted, this is more you getting to know me than me getting to know you, but we could fix that after service. Uh, so. Some fun facts about me are, uh, back in the day, I worked for five summers at a camp uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Frontier Ranch, which is a ministry of Mission Springs. Some of you have probably been there. Uh, and my role there was that I taught small children to ride motorcycles. That is not a joke. That is real. I would teach eight-year-olds and above to ride small motorized vehicles. It was terrifying and wonderful at the same time, so lots of fun there. Um, my second fun fact for you is that I love escape rooms and puzzles. If you are an escape room-er or a puzzler, let's connect. I already had someone from last service be like, I also like to do escape rooms if you need another friend. And I was like, yes, I do. Please, let's go. Uh, so if that's also you, let's chat. That would be so fun. Uh, and then my last one fact for you, all of the youth are going to be like, oh, my gosh. Uh, I love plants. Like, like, okay, no, no, I don't just, like, love plants. Like, I collect houseplants. And I hope you're not thinking, oh, this is one of those millennials who got super into houseplants over in COVID. I was into it two years before COVID, I would like to say, and oh gee, okay? Um, but I like, guys, I really like plants. And what I mean by that is I have 85 plants in my house. I'm in seven buy-sell trade groups on Facebook for the Bay Area. Um, it is so much fun. And if you were to tally the price of the amount of plants I have, it might be close to like three grand. Um, I did not spend that. You, you trade and you like, it's, it's okay. Don't worry, I'm spending my finances wisely. Um, <laughs> but 
I say all this because uh, I actually, one of my favorite plant stories has to do with Christmas Day about four years ago. So I'm at home, I'm from Davis, and I uh, wake up on Christmas morning, and like my family's in the house, and we're like, yay, Christmas. And I wake up, and I like open my eyes, except I can't open my eyes. And I was like, what's going on? Not a pink eye situation where they're like, you know, shut in that way. But I was like, something's wrong with my eyes, eyelids, I don't know. I realize they're swollen shut. And I, like to the point that I can feel the swelling in like the crease of my eye. It was very weird feeling. So I'm freaking out because this has never happened before. My family's freaking out because this has never happened before. And we like are trying to call the doctor, but it's Christmas day. Like probably not like a lot of result going to happen from that. And so we're trying to figure it out, but also we're like, it's Christmas. And so we're like, okay, we'll get on with our day, pop a couple antihistamine, hope that Benadryl kicks in and we'll keep going on with our day. It did not work, unfortunate. Uh, But later I went up to my room and I noticed I was like, I I was taking care of my plants as one does on Christmas day. Uh, And I went up and I looked at my pothos plant. And some of you might know what a pothos is. Here's a picture of it in case you don't. Pretty common house plant. Um, And if you didn't know, plants will drop their lower leaves in the winter because they're trying to preserve energy. So if you have some leaves that are yellowing right now, it's okay, it's not your fault. Um, But they also don't look very pretty when they're like withering away and dead. So uh, I was picking them off the day before and then I realized something else. The pothos plant is also called devil's ivy. And this is because the sap is poisonous. Uh, animals will get super sick. It's like, if you get on your skin, if you're a human being, it's fine, you just gotta wash it off. But if you ingest it, or I don't know, say touch your eyes when you have the sap on your hands, uh, the result might be that your eyes are swollen shut. So that is what happened to me on Christmas day about four years ago, lots of fun, what a good time. It was a stressful situation, not peaceful at all. This morning, we're going to look at a scripture that does talk about a plant but does in fact lead to peace. So would you pray with me this morning as we open? Would you bow your heads? Father, we thank you for this space, for this place, for the opportunity to gather together and hear uh, your word. Jesus, would you open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to what you might be trying to tell us this morning. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as Brad mentioned, we are in the season of Advent, which is the time leading up to Christmas and is often associated as a period of waiting. So we're in this season of uh, waiting for Christ to come. And this is a very like ancient practice. It's been in history for a while. Um, and for us as a church, as we're in this season of waiting, we're also thinking about a season of longing, of longing for the Advent gifts of hope, joy, love, and peace. And this week, we are talking about longing for peace. And to start off, we will start reading a scripture together in the book of Isaiah. If you didn't know, Isaiah is a book of prophecy, meaning it was written a very, very, very long time ago, talking about things to come, a lot of which are referring to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and this this goodness that he will bring in the future. So we are in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, and here is what the book says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears by his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, but they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I initially read this passage, I was struck that it almost read as like a narrative mixed with poetry, that there's a lot of analogy and imagery that Isaiah is drawing forth in this passage. But particularly, I want us to focus on the first verse of the entire thing, where it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, there's some context we have to understand in order to be able to fully realize what Isaiah is talking about. If you didn't know, Jesse was the father of David. Yes, King David, the one who like ruled for a long time and did some good stuff, not good stuff, it's all good. But like that was the king that uh, was the son of Jesse. And when we're looking at the stump of Jesse, we have to think of like a family tree where Jesse is the base, the stump, And then each of his kids are like branch out from him. And then they have kids, they branch out from him and so on and so forth. But this is important for us to understand because Isaiah is not only referring to Jesse's descendants, but specifically thinking about the line of kings that would follow David. It's called the Davidic lineage of kings. And it was promised that uh, this, this royal line would continue for years and years and years, seemingly forever. But what Isaiah is saying in this passage is that the line of kings is going to be cut off. This family tree that we're seeing is going to be cut down, and what's going to be left is nothing. David's line is going to decline so much that it's basically left for dead. And the wild thing about this one sentence at the beginning of this passage of Isaiah is that this was prophesied 100 years before the end of the reign of King Zedekiah. And King Zedekiah was the last royal king of the Davidic line. And this prophecy that the line would end was prophesied over 100 years before it happened. The prophecy does, in fact, come true. So preparation for this, uh, this passage, I did a lot of research on stumps, Uh, My search history is a little weird, and I'm getting a lot of advertisements for, like, landscaping and stump removal now, so it's a little unfortunate. Google's always listening. Don't pretend they're not. Um, A little horrifying, but learned a lot about stumps. This is also not something I ever thought I would be Googling, but, you know. So here's what I learned. Stumps are cut-down trees, obviously, but 
A stump can grow new growth, a new shoot, new life, if it is in fact healthy and still living, like it's not dead. Cool, that makes sense. You would grow something out of something that is still living. It will try and naturally continue to live. However, a lot of the time, trees are cut down or chopped down because they are dead, diseased, or dying. And this is important to understand because, okay, let's be, let's be honest, nothing can grow out of a dead stump. And you're like, obviously, it's dead. But like, I need us to understand that if it's rotten, if the roots are dried out, if there's no possibility of life to exist in the stump, it cannot produce any living growth. And so if we're looking at the, the scripture in Isaiah and comparing that to what we know about stumps, then what Isaiah is referencing, that there is going to be new growth, there is going to be something good, there is going to be life and this promise that comes with Jesus, and this changes everything. Everything that we knew about goodness and badness, death and life is instantly changed because something that is dead is going to produce something that is alive, that is Jesus. And he is going to change everything. What they're saying is that something nearly impossible is happening in a chaotic and disorienting world in which Jesus is going to come. And I'm convinced that the world has never quite been oriented correctly. Looking all the way back to the Garden of Eden, sin came into the world. All of a sudden, things start shifting. From what was originally promised to be good and holy and pure, sin enters and messes that all up. All of a sudden, there's disorientation. The world is not as it should be. And so that's why Jesus coming, this new shoot, this new growth, is exciting. This prophecy is big because what he's saying is Jesus is going to come into a disoriented world and reorient everything. He's going to change everything. And that's reinforced with later in the passage, I don't know if you noticed, but he's talking about that the wolf and the lamb are going to be able to live in harmony. The leopard and the goat are going to be able to lie down in the same space. The, uh, the lion and the calf, the bear and the cow, a child and a cobra or viper. Like these are things that are diametrically opposed. These things should not be able to live in cohesiveness with one, one another. One is always going to be trying to eat the other. This is just the food chain. This is what we know. But if Jesus changes everything, then what we've known is going to change. These things will be able to live in harmony. Can you imagine if you just saw a kid like, petting a wild snake, and it's just like, yeah, we're chilling. Like, that is not something that happens normally. It's a very bad example of what Jesus is going to do, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Jesus is going to turn everything on its head. He's going to reorient towards holiness and righteousness by God's standards. Everything will shift and change. Everything and be oriented in a magnificent way, and peace will rule as the king returns to his rightful throne. How exciting. But then, the people of Israel have to wait, and wait, and wait, for 500 years, between the end of Zedekiah's reign and the coming of Christ, they wait. I almost feel like this is a Hamilton moment, like Aaron Burr should come on stage and be like, no, I'm just going to wait for it, wait for it, wait, like, and it keeps going on, like, that's, that was my imagery I got when I was thinking about this, and it's like, oh, yes, this wonderful thing is going to happen, but, like, not yet, 
Like, just kidding, be patient. Like, I promise it's coming. You might just have to wait 500 years, but like, don't worry about it. It's gonna happen. It's gonna come to fruition. Just trust that peace is coming. When I was in college, uh, I lived with a gal in on-campus housing in an apartment. And I was coming back from youth group one night and I got a frantic phone call from her, which is never something you want from your roommate. And she's freaking out. She's like, Hannah, Hannah. I'm like, what's, like, what's wrong? What, are you okay? And she's like, Hannah, you know the kitchen? I'm like, I'm familiar with the concept of a kitchen. Yes, yes, I know our kitchen. And she's like, well, I was reaching for a glass and the entire shelf fell on me. And I was like, what? And she's like, Hannah, there's blood and glass everywhere. And I was like, no, like, take care of yourself. Go bandage yourself. See if you need to, like, go to the hospital or anything. I will take care of it when I come home. Like, please don't touch any more glass. She was okay. I'm going to preface that now because I know you're all freaked out. Okay, she was fine. But when I got home, I went into the kitchen, and I was looking, and all of our plates, all of our bowls, all of our cups, everything was shattered to smithereens. Like there were big pieces, small pieces, but there, there was no salvaging anything. And on top of that, there's like blood everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, look, I love a good crime show. This was too much for me, in my opinion. Didn't want like a murder scene in my apartment. That was not what I was down for. Um, and so I'm cleaning up and I'm trying to figure out how did this happen? She was like, I was just reaching for a glass. I don't know. Um, and I looked at the shelf, which looks a lot like this picture. It was like an... In, installed in cabinet in the wall um, and I looked at the shelf that had fallen and I noticed that usually these shelves are held up by like four brackets that are holding it up and three of the brackets were installed correctly like upright and one of them was installed on its side and that was the one that was broken had buckled under the weight of all our dishes and had caused everything to fall and break and what I realized in that moment is when things aren't oriented correctly the result is brokenness. I'm gonna say that again. When, when things aren't oriented correctly, the result is brokenness. And that's exactly what happens in the waiting of 500 years that the people of God have to go through. It does not feel peaceful. The world is oriented all wrong. Brokenness is running rampant. They see wars that are starting to break out and uprising. There's a division over leadership and new rulers. People groups are being oppressed and driven out. Does this sound familiar? Because I think the world is still oriented all wrong. We still see this now as we are longing for peace, that there are still wars that are breaking out. There is still lots of division over leadership and rulers there's still racism and poverty, feeling unsettled. And I think it's a very human desire to want peace, to crave and long for feeling settled, for comfort, for stability. And yet, even now, there's still brokenness because things are oriented all wrong. Going back to the passage, so they're waiting for 500 years and waiting and waiting and waiting until Jesus does come. And I want us to look at Luke um, chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. I was informed it is not chapter 1, it is chapter 3. My bad. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38, and this is what it says. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from the heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. And it continues. It continues in this genealogy of Jesus. But I want us to notice, do you see what's highlighted? The son of Jesse. And then if we go to the very bottom in verse 38, it also says the son of Adam and the son of God. This right here, Guys, this is the fulfillment of prophecy at work, recorded in scripture. Jesus has come, and the Spirit of God is descending on him, as was prophesied in Isaiah 11. And what's, what's important is that Luke thought it was important enough to include the genealogy of Jesus, because he's saying, look, remember that stump of Jesse you talked about? Remember how we thought it was all going to be over, it was all going to end, it was all going to be nothing, and that it's because of sin and brokenness with Adam that, that we would no longer be able to be in right standing with God? Look, Jesus is here. He's the new shoot. He's back. He's changing everything. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is here the one who changes it all. His presence and his sacrifice reorients the world into a state of peace. And we see that throughout the Gospels, right? We see him changing culture, starting to shift things. We see him do this as he is healing people, as he is providing holy judgment, and righteous teaching. These are literally the things that are prophesied about. He has come. And it is because of him that we now have an uninhibited relationship with God. Sin no longer can get in the way of our right standing with God because when we ask for forgiveness, we receive it. And that was not able to happen before. There was a divide between us and God, but it's because of the embodiment of love. Jesus incarnate is able to be that bridge for us. He is the embodiment of love. But, look, the prophecy of Isaiah remains true, and it remains fulfilled. But because of sin, because of sin still present in the world, it remains feeling disoriented. The world is still in chaos, and there is still brokenness that is happening. Jesus hasn't returned, and thus we are, we are pushed into this secondary period of waiting and waiting and waiting. We are longing for peace in the waiting. So the question remains for us, how do we seek peace in the midst of waiting? I think we do this through reorienting ourselves to Christ. I hope you see that it's a trickle-down effect, right? If we see, if, if you're tracking with me, we see that the world is naturally disoriented. There is sin, there is brokenness, things do not feel right. But Jesus came and he reoriented the world into right standing. He reoriented towards God towards this relationship with God. And then we are now called to reorient ourselves to Jesus. 
But what does this actually mean? What does this mean for us? I think that it means that the way we think is reoriented towards Jesus. How we process things, where we want to go, how we act becomes reoriented towards Jesus. How we treat people, the decisions we make, as well as how we perceive the world becomes oriented towards Christ. I mean, what, what would it look like for you to see people the way that Jesus does? To view them as actual children of God who are worthy of the same love as you? What would it look like to respond out of love and kindness, even though that might not be our natural tendency? Or what would it look like to think out of a place of putting God's agenda first instead of our own? This isn't easy. And I don't think it's a one and done thing of you're like, oh yeah, I did that once, we're good. Like God and I are cool, I'm reoriented now, whoop whoop. Like I think it's actually a constant process because our gaze strays, we are human. It's gonna naturally happen. And so there's gonna be a, a need for us to constantly and consistently be turning ourselves back towards Jesus, back towards putting him at the center. Uh, even when we mess up, it doesn't mean you're done. It means that you just have to turn a little bit more towards Christ. And when we do, when Jesus becomes our main priority, our main focus, what we seek to live out of and share with others, the peace and the harmony that Isaiah is talking about becomes accessible to us. And the beauty of it all is that we don't have to do this alone. We don't have to reorient alone. I'm convinced that my dad has a superpower. I'm not saying he's a superhero, even though he has many costumes because he was a children's pastor and like likes to run around in capes. He, that does not make a superhero. He could dress up as one, he's not. But I am convinced that he does have a superpower. And his superpower is this. He can find our car in any parking lot we park in, no matter how far away, no matter how close. He knows. He knows. Like, I have this distinct memory when I was four or five, like very small, coming out of Ikea and being like, oh, there's a lot of cars, there's a big parking lot, there's a lot of big people, like, I don't know where we're going. And I remember him grabbing my hand and walking me directly to where our car was, no matter how far away it was. And he would do this time after time after time. And I am convinced that this is what God does for us, that he is helping reorient us towards our car, towards peace, towards goodness. But this can only happen if we let him. Are you allowing Jesus to reorient your world? Are you allowing Jesus to reorient your world? What's stopping you if you're not? Or are you running as far away in the other direction as you can because it's too scary, it's too much? What might be preventing you from saying yes to having Jesus reorient your world? See, here's the thing. We are active participants in this process. 
when God grabs our hand, we can't just like dead weight and have him drag us along because what Jesus actually wants, what God actually wants, is there to be an active relationship, an active partnership where it is our responsibility to meet him in the midst of that. We have to say, yes, God, I'm going to let you do this for me. So while we are waiting in an unpeaceful, in a broken, in a disoriented world, we are called to seek peace by reorienting toward Christ. And you're like, great, that sounds awesome. I'm in. How do I do that? We've been looking at this from a very 3,000-foot view. Practically, what do I do to get there? Well, let me tell you. I think the first thing that will help us is that we have to humble ourselves, and we have to ask Jesus for help. We have to invite Jesus into the process with us. We need to make him an active part, an integral part of our journey in order for us to be reoriented correctly. And the second thing I think that that we need in order to do this is that we need to mimic the actions of Christ. I'm not saying, like, go out into the streets and start healing people and preaching. Like, some of you are nurses and you can heal people. I can't do that. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when we mimic the actions of Christ, we are becoming more Christ-like. We are following in his footsteps. We are looking at his teaching and saying, this is what I want to do with my life. This is how I want to live, how I want to pursue the world. Some of you are like, wow, sounds great. That's really hard. In fact, that's too hard. Sounds really good for you or like the person next to me, but like, nope, too hard for me. And to that I say, really? Because the same God who can make the lion live in harmony with the lamb can surely help provide patience when you're about to explode at that person for cutting you off on the freeway. The same God who can make a child live in peace with a viper can definitely help you extend grace and peace and love towards that person who is not listening to you or is really frustrating and annoying you. It's not too big for God. Here's the thing. We have to put in the effort of letting Jesus take that control and reorienting ourselves towards Jesus constantly. Friends, we long for peace in an unpeaceful world. So why don't we start this process together? As I close my time up here, I would love us to participate in something together. Um, It's a holy practice called breath prayers. And it involves very little, like, you don't have to do much. Like, I will do everything for you. You sit right there. Well done. Step one accomplished. Um, But you will sit there, and if you agree to do this with me, you will breathe. Oh, my gosh. It's like you already know how to do that. But as you breathe, you'll be breathing in the first part of the prayer and breathing out the second part. And this is an ancient practice that was used to help unite prayer with the body, to help embody Christ and focus ourselves on Christ. It's a helpful reorientation tool that I have used when I can't seem to orient myself correctly. And so I'm asking that if you are willing to participate in a moment, 
you would close your eyes, and I will be stating, stating this prayer over you. And as you breathe in, you will pray. I would suggest not trying to be like, like say it as you're breathing, because that's really hard. But you can think it, or like say it under your breath, of Prince of Peace is on the inhale. And as you exhale, you say, be with me. So maybe for you, it looks like not be with me, but guide me, show me, stay with me. Whatever you need for that second half of the prayer, you do that for you. God knows. And so on the inhale, you say, Prince of Peace. On the exhale, be with me. So I'm going to open us in prayer. And the words will be on the screen if you need like a visual reminder. This is just between you and God. We're going to do this together, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we know that the world is not at rest. That there's a lot of brokenness and that, God, we need you. But also that it can be really difficult to reorient ourselves towards you, to have you at the center of it all. So, Father, in this moment, with these breath prayers, would this be a way for us to orient ourselves towards you? So together we pray, inhale, Prince of Peace, exhale, be with me. 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 And inhale, Prince of Peace, exhale, be with me. Father, we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. That when we ask you to be with us, you will show up. Might not be in the way we think or expect. But God, we thank you that your peace is promised and that we can seek that by orienting ourselves towards you. Lord, we give you all of the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen. Thank you for participating in that. I know for some of us it's not the most comfortable thing to be still and to engage in that. And so if that's you, well done. I'm so proud of you. And I hope that this is a tool you can take with you. In those moments where things don't feel quite lined up right, where it's hard in the midst of chaos to focus on Jesus, that you could do this as a practice that will assist in that. As we close, there will be some discussion questions. Um, and I know turning and talking isn't everyone's prerogative. Like, that's not the most comfortable thing. And so if you need to take a picture of these questions and journal about them later this week or talk about them later with someone this week, that's totally fine. Or if you need space to just journal right now as things are fresh in your mind, that's okay too. But I also want to give us the opportunity for those that are external processors or just want to talk about like, ooh, I had this thought and I really want to share it. Feel free to grab someone near you and just be like, hey, I'd love to discuss this with you, whether it's the questions or another thought you had. Um, so you can be free to turn towards one another now.